Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another new episode of COSC Cheat Podcast. Today, we have an amazing guest, Nicola Mansfield, who represents the Design Thinkers, the creative consultancy. She holds the title of Founder and Chief Thinker. I'm absolutely amazed uh, to learn more about this business and welcome to the podcast, Nicola. How are you doing today? Very well. Thank you, Vladimir. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Amazing. As you already know, we're going to start from the learning a little bit more about your business. And to be honest, I never heard about the creative consultancy and I'm keen to learn more about this business before we got into nitty gritty of CEO Cheat Sheet. So can you tell us more about your business, how you started and why? For sure. So I've been in brand consultancy for 30 years, but my journey has certainly taken a few twists and turns on the way. I've headed up for globally for a beauty business, all things brand, creative and marketing. I've also sold businesses into Deloitte and I've been a management consultant as well as leading Australian offices for global branding consultancies. So in that experience, I definitely have understood that brand has the potential to be an amazing problem solver. But to get it right, you really have to obsess about what that problem is in the first place. We are not about brand for brand's sake. We are about brand as a driver of solution. And so thinking through the deep problem ensures that we create something that's fit for purpose as opposed to a template that we replicate for all our clients. So you come up to any problem or any project, you come up with a unique approach to reflect something that is not just seen in other brands? I mean, I'm trying to understand how crazy it is in terms of like creativeness. Like, do you have any limits or boundaries? No. And we have had the opportunity to work on some incredible initiatives with our clients. We start with proposition, which is really understanding what the offer is for a business to its customers. And that ensures that whatever it is that they're offering is resonant and it ensures that it's differentiated from their competitors. And until we've really crystallized what it is that we need to be communicating, we don't even begin to think about the expression of that through brand. The other difference is that we use customer experience and experience design to think about how that brand should go to market. It's so ironic to me when we think about looking at the standard agency brand presentation, because actually the expression of that brand is templated. So most brand consultancies or most brand agencies will show a streetscape with hoarding posters, with four sheets, with the story showed. They will also show a standard website homepage. It's ironic to me that all brands go to market in the same way. Actually, the way a proposition should come to market should be specific to what the problem is being solved. So we have had the opportunity to work with clients and ideate new ways of going to market. And we do that before we even think about designing applications with the new brand look and feel. That's so deep. When I was hearing to all this description, I was starting like, that's probably the right way to test a hypothesis uh, before getting to the market instead of going templated. In the end of the day, you might uncover something that really works instead of, you know, just dumping resources into something that is, you, you can always go there, right? This is very interesting. I also curious, like, why, what's your why? Like, why would you do that? What you do? Like, why would you try to help brands in, in this way? Do you see like a certain big problem in the market because, you know, everyone is so templated? I do. And I'm so glad you asked that question. The first big problem that I see is so many people who are in the branding space will talk in terms of a corporate color and that's what they're hanging their hat on. And I just can't understand how any buyer of creative services is really going to believe that a corporate colour is going to make a three times growth, which could be their strategic objective. So we, we are going much, much deeper. I think the days of aesthetic solutions need to be numbered because that's not going to drive meaningful growth for an organisation. The second thing that I am deeply obsessed about, as well as a brands with meaning is around differentiation in market. So my question constantly is how can you use a standardized methodology and a templated array of outputs 
to differentiate a business from its competitors? That's a very challenging task, I could say, from from this uh, description. (laughs) I think my goal is to get my clients to the point where they have so much clarity on what it is that they, where they need to be positioned in market. They have so much clarity on their unique brand codes that they, in fact, are able to Uh, write cease and desist letters to competitors who might be encroaching on their territory or imitating the way they're going to market because they have those brand codes registered and there is IP around them. But you can't do any of that unless you are clear on your proposition, clear on your market positioning and have defendable brand codes. Well, that things sounds pretty new to me in terms of like you need to defend the brand codes as like you, you're defending your competitive territory. But yeah, I see how you come up with this opportunity to leverage on that. This is pretty interesting. Every time something new to learn. And what's your personal goal with this business? I mean, there's a business goal. I see this mission is very noble and I think many brands should uh, rethink the way they go. But what's your personal take in, in this business? Yeah, personally, I've, I've sat in businesses and I've been able to charge handsomely for fees. Unless I am really able to deliver results for those fees, I have an ethical challenge around charging that money. So I am only interested in partnering with a client where I'm confident that I can drive change. And I know that my way of driving change and growth is by deeply understanding the problem. So I have an ethical concern about so many of the practitioners in the brand space, which becomes broader and broader because they're offering solutions that are not going to drive results. I am very results driven and so much so that the design thinkers is willing to guarantee growth. So if I do not achieve, I'm so confident that I can achieve growth for my clients that if I do not, I do not want to take a fee. That's interesting. So yeah, it's very ethical, sort of like if you see that something doesn't going to work, you just uh, save both parties the time <laughs> and money. Exactly. But that means having the confidence to go down a path that is right for that client and to depart from a standardized methodology requires experience. And I think that's really where my my point of difference in market comes. I do have that experience and I do have that confidence and I am all about results for myself and for my clients. I'm definitely sure customers love that approach. <laughs> and what you would like or don't like, you know, in your business when, when you run like, you know, daily operations, like just running the business. I am not a fan of repeatable tasks or repeatable tasks. I find it to be very draining on my energy. And thank goodness we now have augmented intelligence who, you know, is able to take that off my plate. I'm not a fan of low value tasks. I want to be concentrating my energy on the high value tasks. That brings me energy. It brings me fire. So I'm very, very conscious about two things as I run my business. Firstly, am I delivering value in the ex- in the activity that I'm doing and the task that I'm undertaking? And Secondly, is that going to drive results for the clients and how can I ensure that this is good, productive energy? And I use that word productive as well. I like to operate at about 120% productivity. My career has got me to the point where that's the way I like to operate, but I don't want to do that for 40 hours a week. So I want to work less at a higher rate of productivity And that for me personally, gives me time to get outside on a sunny day, go for a walk, get some energy and bring that back to my clients. So staying fresh by undertaking high value tasks with excellent rates of productivity. That sounds very wise and smart. It's like recharging your creative battery. And I think what you mentioned with augmented, I would say AI, like basically what I think you're capitalizing on that the direction where I think we all should move. It's exactly about to improve our quality of output by working smarter, not harder, and giving this harder to the software and the AI, right? <laughs> Absolutely. You said it beautifully, Vladimir. All right. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. So we hopefully will be there without any any privacy and ethical concerns breached. But there's another topic to discuss. Like I think AI is uh, all around there, so it's hard to avoid. <laughs> 
So about the last item of the warming up, we would love to learn like what's your seal daily lifestyle would look like, maybe some healthy habits you can share or, I don't know, daily rituals that keeps you in shape, energetic and capable of driving this business. It's a great question. I think during winter, it is a commute to and from the snow. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a skier. And I like to take, during winter, I try to do a three-day weekend and commute every other weekend to have a ski. I'm outdoors for at least out at eight hours a day. I'm exercising, I'm breathing fresh mountain air, and that brings me enormous amounts of energy. During the summer, it is definitely about trying to get out and walk. And during summer, I find myself walking a lot in the evenings with friends. It's a habit that started in COVID as a way of uh, sustaining social connection. And it's a habit that I try to persist with as often as possible. So whether it be weekend hikes or weekly wanderings with friends, it's something that has become part of my routine. And it's definitely outdoors, repetitive. I am prepared to be repetitive when it's about exercise because then it becomes almost meditative and my mind goes to quite a different place and it's a really good place to problem solve. So those problems, those client business problems are always there, but I find invariably I am better at thinking about that problem when I'm not sitting at my desk. That's interesting. Yeah, staying outdoor, having the sun bath is oxy flowing into you. This is great. I'm just curious, like, do you think about the clients or another problem why you have this work? Always. And it's productive thought. So it's almost like that 120%. It's looking at things from the different angle. Literally, I'm sitting at my desk. I have a beautiful view, but I need a different view to come at the problem from a different way. So it gives me that when I'm outdoors. I'm talking with friends, thinking about life, but invariably as I walk home from that walk, I get that perspective and it comes quickly and it feels like another expression of that high productivity, high value work, which I'm most interested in at this point in my career. That's powerful. That's something I would say in technical terms, you're actually multi-threading, doing several operations in your head while doing some other activities in parallel. That's cool. (laughs) No, I I truly believe 120% or even more uh, achievable in such approach. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. I think so far we are ready to go to the core and maybe we'll learn a little bit more about how this creative consultancy work and maybe learn a bit more about that business as well through going over this structured process, like how you start uh, with the clients, like how you do the engagement, you know, how you execute the work, report the progress, communicate it to the client, like speaking operationally, and then also getting into the questions such as accountability, data transparency, and autonomy of your business. So let's start from the quote generation and how how you usually begin to work with a client. So one of my favorite parts of an engagement is the initial conversations because I'm actually always curious. And for me to have permission to sit with another business leader and say, but why, but why, <laughs> and dig into their problem until even they are getting to places that they've not got to before, that's where the gold starts to happen. And for me, it's the joy of problem solving. It's sitting in that problem and really becoming familiar with that problem from a variety of different angles is essential to being able to generate an innovative solution. And the joy of being able to do that, even in a proposal, to make somebody, you know, my goal out of those initial conversations is to have somebody say, wow, I've never thought about it from that angle before, because then I know we're into fresh territory. We're going to actually be able to generate change. So even writing proposals for me is is a joy. Then we go into an initial discovery phase where we're really interrogating all sorts of information that traditionally brand agencies don't ask for and digging deep to understand, you know, how are you operationalizing? Where are your capability strengths? Where are your capability gaps? Where do you have an under-resource that we need to be conscious of as we're designing solutions? Obsessing about the customers. I think one of the things that organizations, and I 
have another person in my network who says this. So whilst I love the idea, I'm not going to to claim it. But he says, trying to understand your brand from within a business is like looking at the jar from the inside, the label is in reverse. Oh, that's interesting. So being able to really take that objective view of a business and share those insights with the leaders of the business is often it creates epiphanies for them. And I call it myth busting, taking things that they've held true and never really interrogated and certainly never looked at objectively. And suddenly by putting those on the table in a different perspective, you actually create a genuinely clean sheet from which to create. So whether that's at proposal writing stage or in our first stage, which is about discovery, that for me is where the real energy comes from. And unless you've done that effectively, you have not given yourself permission to innovate on solution. Yeah, that's very, I would say, a unique approach. As far as I understood, when you begin the even like initial call with the client, you don't mind to give away some value as you said, during proposal stage, if I understood you properly, uh, just to spark the interest from the customer to go to the next stage. That's what I mean? Yeah, I mean, the the proposal needs to have earned us permission mm-hmm. to go deep. Yeah. And in order to get permission to go deep, we need to start finding gaps or areas of opportunity that the client clearly understands. So one or two conversations to get to that is standard. It allows us to write a proposal with an appropriate amount of scope. The client sees the value in that scope, and then we go even deeper. And the the session where we play discovery back to the client, which might be four weeks into the process, you just see the lights coming on and you know that person, you know, sometimes I say it's like watching somebody fall in love because suddenly they're realizing that you've got answers that they've been looking for but didn't even know they needed and they're with you and then they're on the journey and then it's a journey that you take together. So it's really important, those initial conversations in proposal and the initial discovery phase. I'm so intrigued to try this journey as a customer with you. I mean, at least in the first stage, because <laughs> it sounds very teasing, you know. I, I got to share a little bit of something we did, I did personally. These initial calls, they are always considered by me tricky because, you know, it's going free for you. You, you spend time, but there is a promise, of course, that you, you're going to win this client and go on. And I found sometimes I'm giving away too much, but then I realized that's probably one of the reasons why some of them went uh, forward with me because of this open approach. And I think like what you're doing is kind of like similar. You, you focus on the value and the result uh, instead of like thinking like, oh, whether I'm wasting like, the time right now or not, it's just being, it seems like passionate about the process. And when the customer sees this fire in your eyes, they probably got uh, sold out. So this is very interesting. I, I got to reflect on that <laughs> in my free time. So thanks for sharing this. It's like very deep answers. One thing I would add, because I think what you've said is a, is a great reflection of that. I want to be a client's partner, not a supplier. And I want us to be on the journey together. So it's a different way. It's a different kind of relationship that I'm striving to have with my clients. Like abstaining away from this like uh, dollar first servicing, uh, more like, yeah, I got you. That's, that's powerful. Yeah, that's, <laughs> as I said, I got to reflect on my end. Maybe, maybe it's a good thing to do. And I can tell uh, from, from my experience, I'm pretty sure you have the same feeling. It just enjoy that, right? In the end of the day. Oh, <laughs> Totally. It's, you know, it's what I say to my team. It's what I say to my kids. It's what I say to my friends and family. If you can love what you do, then it's not work. It's a passion. Yeah, that's amazing. And yeah, okay, cool. I, I, especially, I, I definitely think that client engagement part is very strong in your business. And I'm curious, like, whether you have any supporting tooling for quote generation, um, you know, contracts, like, do, do you use something that you would uh, be comfortable to share with, uh, with the listeners? At this stage, as a, as a relatively young business, a huge volume of work I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to say has been through network and word of mouth. And I do have a, a series of clients who, some of whom have I've worked with three, four, five times in different iterations, me in different iterations, different businesses, them changing roles as well. 
but those same people will come to me for a variety of solutions because they like the approach. So, so far, it has really been a question of inbound work as opposed to outbound approach. I am beginning to think more about outbound approach because certainly with the last three quarters, we've had being a contraction of business strategy. I'm finding so much of the market right now is interested in just trying to hold steady with business as usual. What I'm most interested in is the people like me who don't want to do the same thing all day, every day, but in fact, who see these three quarters of downturn as opportunity. They're the ones I want to work with. So tools are perhaps less sophisticated than other people you might speak to because with 30 years of network, I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of inbound traffic. Yeah, I got it. So yeah, basically this question is a bit more boring in, in the nature, like as, as it's supposed to have some practical approach, but I realize like since you have a lot of inbound clients, it's mostly about like a perpetual process of working out uh, these existing opportunities, right? I'm, I'm just curious, like, and I, I generally curious to learn as I potentially might become your customer, like how the progress is tracked, how the things are being calculated. Like if we, if we end up having like work relationship, how, I mean, scope of work is constructed. Like there is a certain amount of hours that being put into a question from your team, or it's more like result oriented, but then if it's the result, like how it's structured and then report it over the time of the progress. Yeah. Definitely rate construct is based on time, but I set this business up with the view of never having to do another timesheet again, because I've spent 30 years doing timesheets. So the way I'm managing team is different and we are all about output orientation. So in a week, a given team member will have a task that we agree at the beginning of the week about what is achievable and my time working with them is checking in on progress and quality. It's less about how many hours they're on a given task and it's more about them being able to use their time effectively to deliver the results that we've agreed at the end of that week. And my teams, and I work with a lot of different people because my array of offering is broad. Sometimes it's business strategy, sometimes it's brand design, sometimes it's operationalizing an experience. They're three very different skill sets and it ebbs and flows across that broad array of clients. So I found that contractor model works best because it means I can go for the task specialist and deliver again, high quality, high productivity, high value. So my team has said they absolutely love, they, they, I offer them more independence than any other business they might have worked with in the past because I don't care when they do their work. I don't care how they do their work as long as we get to the point that we've mutually agreed at the end of a, of a week. And if they're not, so my work with them tends to be, what else do you need to get there? If they're not on track, they'll let me know. If they're struggling with the task, they'll let me know. And then it becomes my job in that is to get them what they need to be able to do the job we've agreed. So it's a really different way of managing teams and they love it. Yeah, I can tell this is very, very different from what I usually hear and even seen in my career as it's like, it feels like you're focusing on the qualitative approach only right now, that quantitative is like, not like even secondary, it's like tertiary and it just goes in the end and you put this week. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, of course the team would love that for sure, but I'm curious, like how the measurement of their growth also happens within these terms. Like, is it just um, someone who interacts with them directly can do such evaluation, like maybe you or someone who is working with them, like reporting to them, just trying to understand whether this system, which looks like a little bit as a topia, would allow for a growth of such uh, such approach. Yeah. So the other thing I learned in the last business that I was in, I implemented a tiering structure for capability. Now that's straight out of professional services, but I've never seen it applied in agency. And what that means is, and I've, I've spoken with my team about this, it's a roadmap for a career because you implicitly understand what needs to be true to go from this level to that level. 
And it's not based on who you've been drinking with on the weekend. And it's not based on who you're mates with. And it's not based on so many of the factors that tend to be inherent in agency promotions. It is capability based. And your ability to deliver consistently on the tasks that have been set over the course of a week is how you determine that banding. When I first implemented it at the last agency, everybody was up in arms. It felt like a management consulting approach, but very quickly they realized they were in control of their career and they were in control of how quickly they chose to accelerate that career. It's less about you must do this role for three years and it's more about you must consistently express and demonstrate these capabilities for at least a good six-month period so we know you're ready to go up to the next level. Part of the issue we face in the creative industry is title inflation, especially over the last few years where people have been given really big titles because companies haven't had profit margins to pay more. So they're compensating for stagnating salaries with career, uh, sorry, title inflation. That's all well and good from an agency perspective. But as a client, if I'm working with somebody who has a specific title, I have very specific expectations. And if that person is not delivering, I'm disappointed. So I think it's a false economy for agencies to do this. I think we need to strip it out. I think we need to get back to capability. We need to title appropriately because ultimately if you're promoting someone, sorry, if you're giving someone a title that is higher than what they're able to achieve, your client is disappointed and then suddenly the client doesn't want to pay as much for the services. It's just a false economy. So I think truth in some discipline and some rigour in the way we do this is important for our industry to retain relevance to clients. Yeah, that's absolutely truth. I mean, like, to be honest, I didn't pay much attention to these titles inflation, but I've seen this in my industry in software development. It doesn't really matter, actually, whether you're senior, middle, junior. It doesn't matter as long as you stay consistent as you sat with, uh, with the uh, task that you estimated, approved, validated, and then delivered. So if every step is matched, that means you technically grow and that's it. And as long as, of course, you have a, a stronger tasks. So basically in your system, just to recap, if I consistently not having much issues and deliver on time on a week to week basis on no matter how much issues I have, as long as I not, do not prolongate that, that would mean the mark of success and would contribute potentially to my growth and review in a half year. Okay, that's cool. And from a training perspective, in, and this is some of the discipline that I, I had the great pleasure to learn when I was a management consultant with Deloitte, the opportunity to really be an active participant in your career, not to wait for somebody else to tell you when you're ready, but what Deloitte is very good at and the people within Deloitte are very good at is to say, I need this to go to the next level. So you become an active driver. You're seeking training that's appropriate. You're seeking opportunities on specific engagements. You're wanting to work with certain kinds of managers who are going to teach you more and you're in control of your career. And I think without the clarity of the roadmap and the banding and the level you need to be operating at, how can anybody take control of their own career? So I think it benefits everybody. But most importantly, if a client is working with somebody who has senior in their title, they're going to be able to expect that work is delivered at a senior level instead of being disappointed. And that's a a terrible circumstance to put an individual in to have a title that they can't deliver against. That's just negative for everybody. So I don't know why we do it, but a lot of people have been doing it. And just lie is inside the core of this concept. You're lying about the title, not much in the expectation on many levels, including compensation. And then customers also carried on this way of lying again. So yeah, definitely something that is shouldn't be there. And back to value, Vladimir, back to value. Like if you have an intrinsic belief in the value that your services will deliver, why would you lie about that? You have to believe in the in the services. You have to believe in what you can achieve for a client. And without that ecosystem of beliefs and values, you undermine the industry. Yeah, it's like manipulation, but it's very, very poorly, I would say, planned in the very beginning. I mean, <laughs> you straight out lying about the mismatch and then you just uh, maybe 
feel surprised that something doesn't go as you expect it to be when it should be go this way because you're aligned in the first place. So yeah, definitely like to me, it just doesn't make sense. It's just a manipulation. As you mentioned, like I see why um, the companies might do that just to kind of compensate the fact that they can't grow their personnel. But instead of like doing something that more, I would say smart, for example, in the, in the hardship, and I'll share like our personal experience when we had high hard times due to COVID and not having enough no work to do. We simply offered people to work less, retaining their current rates. We, we said like, right, we, we can't give you my job. We don't want to lie to you why we can't review or something like that. We just let them know like, we can provide you this amount of work. If, you, if you're okay to proceed with us, let's go. But we're definitely not going to like expect from you more work or like give a false rate. So we, we can't afford false titles, whatever. We're just, um, just being honest with them. And it worked out. People felt this transparency and yeah, believed that there's a hard time that might go. And actually, uh, after, after some period of time, it, it's been confirmed. So that's true. Be, being honest, I think, is, is extremely important, especially with, with your employees or team. It's like, to me, it's like a family. Like, wh- why would you lie? I mean, it's, it just doesn't make sense if you see working together in the next five, 10 years. I don't know. <laughs> and I guess there's, um, you know, everything you've said is, is exactly right. There is a commoditization effect that's going on in our industry. So many providers offering the same thing and suddenly you're in a race to the bottom on price. So, you know, I think what is so exciting for the design thinkers is we have a genuinely differentiated offering. And from that belief in the value of that differentiated offering, everything else stems. I'm not sitting here worrying about what I can charge out per hour on somebody and how I can put a more junior person into that role so that I can increase my margin. That's a different, that's a commoditized approach to agency And that's why from a consultancy perspective, I'm differentiating my offer. I'm offering a higher value of service and that runs through everything that I do. Two very different mindsets. Yeah. Oh, a a small side note. I was just thinking about like about commoditizing and everything. It's like the government still pushes you toward that because like I had some people who wanted to migrate and they've been asked like, what was your rate? How many hours you worked? All that stuff. So if you've been too creative with that stuff, you, you got to come up with maybe up some numbers to just satisfy this system. So yeah, it's, it's kind of flaw in the system that just spreads everywhere. But I totally agree. At some point, it would make sense to do the quantitative approach as long as you can contribute with a specific, I mean, value, because it, it would be naturally driving you for, towards. And I hope that AI would support that because it might take all of the things we do just because we need to fill those hours or do something that not necessarily contributes to, to the final result. All right. But in this scenario, like it seems like most of the contracts you guys going to have is going to be fixed price. And of course, results oriented and there's still going to be deadlines. But I'm curious, like how you guys still report the uh, progress to the client, how you communicate that in two scenarios, if everything goes okay, and if something goes wrong and deadlines must be pushed back. So the proposal is all written in stages. And each stage has a costing against it and it has a duration against it and it has a set of deliverables against it. So I treat those as stage gates and we don't go through a stage gate until we've got an approval and until everybody is happy. It's on me to ensure that the timing is not overrunning and this is where we come back to productivity. This is where we come back to agreed milestones and deliverables with team members. If there is a complexity that we hit during that process, that means that stage gate is not achievable anymore, then that's a conversation with the client. We've identified this area which we hadn't anticipated for, are you aware of it? Do we skip over that or do you want to invest a little bit extra time so that we can incorporate that into the process? So in short, it is a combination of very clear milestones for team that they can be held to account, hold themselves to account for. It is very clear understanding of from the client about what precisely we're going to do so that in the event there needs to be deviation, it's just a discussion about which way they'd like to go. And ultimately, there is a stage gate throughout the process. So you do not end up with hundreds of thousands of dollars out of pocket. You're working in smaller components, each of which needs to be approved to go to the next phase. 
And very often the client appreciates that conversation so much. I would never hit a client with a secret bill. I would have a discussion with them before. And in the event that they're not seeing, doesn't happen often, it's maybe happened once or twice in my career, but in the event that they've not seen value from a specific output in that journey, bearing in mind there might be five stage gates, then that's that requires a conversation and it's quite a it can be quite a difficult conversation. I need to understand what's going on. Why was the value not there? What would you have expected to see? And again, that requires a conversation. In my experience, the engagements that go bad is when the client doesn't understand the process. And when an engagement goes well, it's when the client has as much ownership of the process and the journey that we're on as we do as the guide to that journey. That's very well answered. I would say like, it's hard to find something, you know, I, I could answer the, uh, ask the question in terms of like, what do we do in this some crisis time? But I realized what you guys do in the creative space, it probably doesn't have to, I would say, contrast or sharp boundaries of the deliverable, right? Like it's still, I, I'm not trying to say it's bad, but I would say it's deep into understanding like how detailed you want specific deliverables. So if there are mismatch between the expectation of the client and what you guys deliver, you offer the option to make it more detailed, more deeper, but at some point there are still sort of standards which you approach anyway, right? And don't get me wrong, I'm just engineer guy, numbers guy. I'm trying to, <laughs> I try to understand like what would be the standard and like how it deviates from the perception of you as a consultancy that the result is delivered and the client on the receiving side, whether I'm satisfied and to which extent. So it's a bit tricky. <laughs> yeah. So I can give you another example and let's talk about the creative expression phase because that's something that all agencies will go through. In a traditional agency, traditional brand agency, your engagement letter, your proposal, your quotation will say, we will deliver five applications, which are X, Y, Z, well, let's say A, B, C, D, E. <laughs> and you've decided that before you know anything about the business. And I found that to be a barrier because what I didn't want to be doing was delivering a relatively low value application to a client as an expression of the brand where based on the learnings, I actually knew it was an onboarding booklet that was going to be the most valuable thing because they have a staff onboarding issue, which we've uncovered in the process. So now what I do is I will say to a client based on your level of revenue, I believe that you require 60 hours of creative and we will agree the applications prior to commencing that creative phase. And that's when I know more about their needs, their channels, their problems. And I can say, I think the best use of the 60 hours is A, B, C, D, E. Do you agree? And they might say, as invariably they do, yes, we need all that, but we also need this, 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 and this. And suddenly I've bought myself a hundred hours of expression because the client recognizes the value. But the point is, it's about being accountable in that case, not so much outputs, but a time duration. And when we know more, we agree the specifics. And the other thing I would say is, you know, and I, I was first engaged to fix this problem for an agency in, in the mid-noughties where the creative team was spending five times the allocated time on creative expression because the client would say, no, that's not it. No, that's not it. I don't know what it is, but I haven't seen it yet. And my process is so informed and the client spends so long on the journey understanding the problems, and we're so good at articulating what the creative solution needs to achieve that I don't very, very rarely do I have to go back and do a do-over because we're on the journey with the client. And so it really is a collaborative process and rarely do we have do-overs. Got it. So it's like very incremental, sane approach where you, you have always staying in touch with the client. So yeah, I, I got it. It's, it's a bit different from, from what I used to see. And it's like 
And probably you mentioned that's why, because you've considered the client as a partner and it's more integral. So you probably avoid a lot of issues just by having this intense communication or at least intense, I would say, reactive system to any feedback and applying it right away. Yeah. That's interesting. And when it comes to like more traditional operations work, like invoice and payments, just curious. And like, I didn't ask about the tool, what you use, like you probably still use something to register different steps in these stages yeah, that you mentioned. Like, do you use some tool like, I don't know, Trailer or Asana to capture them? Like, do you keep a record of uh, all of these items? Usually, and here's another thing that makes us perhaps a bit different I've run big agencies. I had a team of 120. Um, most recently, I had a team of 25. I've had teams of 35. I think there's it's a really interesting thing in agency land when you think about the volume of headcount, which is the volume of work that you need to be generating, the volume of complexity in administration, and how that maps on to profit and margin. So the rule of thumb, I would say, from my experience, is that you can get up to 12 and you will see incremental growth of both profit and margin. But from 12 to about 40, margin plateaus. So you've got a lot more work and a lot more systems, but actually your your profit is going back into the business to create systems to manage the growth. And once you get to 40 and above, then you start to see margin growth again. So we made, in when we sold the customer experience business to Deloitte, we'd made a really conscious decision that 12 was our limit because we recognized we would need to implement a lot of infrastructure to support growth beyond 12. And we didn't want to do that. So we got to a point within about 12 months where we were starting to validate clients and say no to people because we didn't want to take on the project because it would push us beyond that that headcount number. The other thing that I would say is design thinkers being set up lean, agile and deep partnership. I have to be very careful about the volume of growth that I'm taking on. So it's not even 12 in most instances. I want to sit somewhere around the seven mark because that means I'm still deeply connected to the clients. Scale will come from ventures on the side and passive revenue through other activities. What I'm not interested in doing is scaling to the point where I don't get to do what brings me energy. Mm-hmm. I got it. So you don't want to tap into this operational. So that's a very different approach. And that's just me as an individual. That's not a business rule. I know what gives me energy. I want to scale this business to the point where I'm saying no to people and taking on the people I want to work with. My growth of revenue and profit will come from other more passive ventures that I'm involved in. Yeah, I think it makes total sense. I've also grown team to up to, I think, 100, not 120. And I can relate to the number of people you mentioned, like at count of 12 and more. And you're right, like at some point you start, you need to invest into infrastructure so you don't live in the chaos. So you're absolutely right. The problem is, and what we are trying to solve with our product is just to avoid that clutter, avoid the necessity to invest so much time into managing the infrastructure, to managing your business. So it would make sense because yeah, you're you're totally right. But I'm still going to be persistent. Like, do you still use any tools? I mean, (laughs) or you just, you just probably just documents, you capture things up and that's it. Yeah, look, zero, of course, and a very good bookkeeper and a fantastic accountant that holds me to account. I'm invoicing by stage. So I have fixed invoices with a fixed schedule and they tend to be larger invoices. So I'm very rarely on a on an ad hoc hourly construct, which is when invoicing volume goes through the roof. There there might be six invoices over the course of a program of 12 months. So that streamlines as well. Do you like you do risk the cost of the total contract with this invoice? I mean, I've I've seen this in the businesses. That that makes total sense. Uh, do you have any specific formula, or you just hmm, charge like month to month basis, based of course on the length of the contract, or there is like kind of percentage composition? I'm just curious because some of our other guests uh, shared some formulas. You know, percentage of the total contract charged at the different stages. Just to understand, if you, if you don't mind to share that. Yeah, look, for me, it's because they're larger invoices. There's a commencement invoice. Yeah. 
And then there is an invoice which will be of varying volume at the completion of each stage. Some stages are bigger than others. But the rule of thumb, which I've learned through management consultancy, but also of finding myself in a position where I was exposed, where I've got too much work outstanding, I don't want to be issuing, I don't want to have so much, oh, I can't articulate this well. There is a formula and I, now I need my accountant to, to step into this. But essentially, you cannot have more owing than is remaining because then you're at risk. So I manage the final stage gates. Sometimes they get smaller because what I don't want to do is have 30% of the total engagement cost outstanding after I've completed the project. I want to be at a point where I'm handing over final files knowing that 95% of the total value of the project has been invoiced. And that's unfortunately learned the hard way. But wonderfully, having a good network of people, I'm sitting there going, I've done this wrong because I've got too much money outstanding and I've got to hand over the files. My network is close and I've not been, I've only once have I been left exposed. Okay. Well, that's, that's very cool numbers you're sharing. Like 95 to 5% outstanding left. This is cool. Because, you know, this problem is consistently, I would say, plaguing the space. Someone's want to charge upfront. Someone's clients always wants to go postfront. And then it's, it's a game of like how much you charge, how much you have outstanding work. And I think what you just covered, you don't need probably to have it like super precise formula, but what you just said, just having reserved enough that you can go break even with your staff, with your team. In the end of the day, I think this is the most fair point. If it's the worst case scenario, you paid everyone because you had the reserve, you probably didn't earn nothing. Well, this is a kind of, let's say crisis, but it's best price instead of being in debt or just being negative, right? So that's pretty cool. It, but it works as well, Vladimir, for, from a relationship perspective. So I'm never asking my clients to spend huge volumes until they see the value in what they're getting for that. The only time they're ever asked to pay before they've experienced the benefit of the deliverable is on commencement. But there's, there's some careful staging of when those invoices need to fall and when the delivery of items is to ensure that you don't find yourself in a position when you've just delivered a whole bunch of work and you're still waiting for the 30 days to see if the invoice gets paid. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's extremely smart in the both hands. Like it makes sense for you as a company and the customer. Everyone's just kind of earning the trust as they go and slowly, incrementally get into a point when do more for each other. So that makes sense. Thanks for sharing this. I think every listener would find it wise because in the end of the day, the challenge is going to appear and uh, <laughs> you got to be ready for that. As for one thing that I think we covered pretty much everything except for autonomy. I think when it comes to autonomy, you partially, I think, cover this in, in other answers. Like as long as you can do whatever you can do without like, overworking or pushing yourself to the limits or, you know, into uncomfortable state. It seems to me like the best balanced point, but autonomy is more like, can you just, you know, leave your current seat and, I don't know, go to sabbatical for a year? Will your business uh, remain like in the same state or, or even continue growing? Not at this point. But nor is it designed to. Mm. So you don't, you, by design, you want to be always part of this uh, journey, right? This is what brings me my energy. It's problem solving. It's problem solving for businesses. And I've said to people for a while now, when I started as a graphic designer, I thought the problems that I was solving were visual. And I always treated it more strategically. So I used to think of it as information design. Good graphic design should be nothing more than information design. But I realized as I started to move more into strategy and then into business strategy that you can be every bit as creative with those disciplines as you could with visuals. It brings me as much energy. And now I'm solving bigger problems. Now I'm solving more complex problems. And that gives me my energy. It's like that, you know, when you're sitting at a dinner party, you're sitting next to somebody super interesting and it gives you so much energy. Every client experience for me is like that. So I want to stay connected to that. And the scale will come from other places because otherwise I have to design myself into obsolescence if I'm going to scale here. I don't want to be obsolescent. So <laughs> I enjoy what I do. <laughs> Amazing. I usually at this point, when I hear such answer, I have to say autonomy is just irrelevant. As long as, I mean, 
I found that seeking autonomy usually comes out of the needs to change something, like something that is not okay. Like, for example, like speaking of my story, I love what I did in the software development agency creating solutions, but I figured like, I can't do this all the time and I need to do like something even more specific, like going into product development. This is where I started seeking autonomy. This is where I was like, okay, I just want to have a freedom to say no and switch completely to something else. This is when, when I needed autonomy. But as long as I keep engaged in something that just brings me enough joy and, you know, I would say purpose to be part of this, I don't need it. So that makes sense. Well, I think what, what you've done, Vladimir, and having worked in high administrative environments before, having a tool like Workler is amazing. And absolutely, you know, if you're, if through use of your tool, you're able to take that number of 12 to 18 before you need to implement additional rounds of infrastructure, that's incredible. That's delivering an additional 30% of profitability on top of agency model by using a high, you know, a, a productive tool. That's awesome. And you yourself would have spent all the time working out the issues and the problems to find and create a solution that works. And now that it works, you've done your high value task. So fair enough, you need to be into something else. I think we're saying the same thing. You've created a fantastic tool. You've spent your time on the high volume, high value task. And as soon as it's become repeatable, you're looking for new things to maintain your energy. So I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And actually, it brings me a key out of being a slave of my own business in this software development agency. And I now on the big journey, which is much more exciting and challenging, is to see if it's possible to do the same for the other businesses. So, for example, it's just imaginary. I don't want to apply any specific concepts, but... What do you say about 12 people as a boundary? My question, number one, that pops up in my head, how can I repenetrate that? How we can make it 120 without, uh, you know, ruining the current, uh, you know, beauty of small team? How we can do that? How we can uh, make the, you know, profits continue growing either in linear scale, whatever it is, but not like reaching the plateau. So yeah, exactly. And... <laughs> That's, that's something that is interesting with AI coming in, because I found that we really need to do these smarter tools in the way people can only focus on high value. Even if they work much less, I mean, time-wise, as long as they produce this almost the same, maybe a little bit less value, it's still productiveness would be much higher. You know, like on, on the average scale, if you just uh, work eight hours a day, one output, but if you work like two to three hours, but you like fresh, you provide much smarter decisions, you might even beat this because at some point you might accumulate so much energy and knowledge that you come up with some genius solution. So hopefully we'll get there. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So that's great. What other tips and tricks you can share beyond uh, what we have discussed? Maybe for someone who is about to start the business or who's running the agency on top of that you already shared. Yeah, I had this conversation with a roundtable that I chaired last week and I threw this idea out and so many people have come back to me and said that was so valuable. So why don't I share that? I think I said then and I, I say now, I am really addicted to that 120% efficiency. And as soon as I feel my wheels spin, and I'm not superhuman, I'm I'm not a 120% robot. There are days when I know I'm not delivering at that level. I want to design enough bandwidth and buffer into my day so that if my wheels are spinning, it's tools down. The notion that I'm sitting at my desk burning time not well frustrates me so much. So I am addicted to that 120% efficiency. To maintain that, the top trick that I would suggest to everybody is, even though I said I never want to do timesheets, do timesheets for a week, but really record what you're doing. Record what you're doing and what level of productivity you're doing at. And do that for a couple of weeks. And each week, draw yourself a pie chart. And I guarantee you will be absolutely shocked and horrified that you're spending probably 40% of your day on low-value administrative tasks. That's when you need to speak to Vladimir and get work there. But if you are doing that, you want to know that. Spend, Work out what you're spending your time on, work out where the value is, and then here's the trick. Whatever it is that you're paying yourself, whatever it is that you are earning from your employer, 
Work out how much per hour you're actually earning by considering high-value tasks versus low-value tasks. And as soon as you find yourself sitting there spending 30% of your time doing a low-value administrative task that you should be paying someone half of what you're being paid, you will stop doing it. So in all of that, become addicted to efficiency. Know that you can't deliver at that pace all of the time, but nor should you because that's where the great thinking comes. Map your week and work out how you can eradicate as much of the low-value tasks as possible. And once you've done that, Work out what you're actually paying yourself and is it at the level you should be? And if it's not, redesign the way you're working. That's brilliant. I'm starting to think like I need to evolve my pitch because if people realize that, then they will come for my product maybe. It's <laughs> amazing. Like the realization of that or any other solution, but realization of that is like the most important knowledge that might just change the way people live as they start to value their time more. I mean, I love that trick. It's amazing. Yeah, I just reflect a lot. I don't, I don't want to bring you a lot of uh, useless information, but I would say in software development career, you get to a point one day, you can code for eight hours a day or 10 hours a day. But what we did, we didn't draw the pie chart. We see, we evaluate that as what actual value you create. And when you work like four to three hours, you realize, whoa, I did probably less, but I didn't revise it. That means this solution went final. That means less work in the end. So working less, producing more is just natural in this case. This is amazing that if people would understand that and of course have their way to delegate and offload this, as you said, low administrative, all low value tasks in general. Yeah. And I think it takes a couple of mindset shifts. It is, you know, I think so much of our workforce is managed through presenteeism. I want to see you at your desk between nine and five, and then I know you're working. That's crazy. So departing from that, thinking in terms of output and becoming obsessed with high, high efficiency working and being quite prepared. For me, the reason I'm prepared to tools down when I'm spinning my wheels is because I want to preserve efficiency. And every minute I'm spending at my desk spinning wheels, my efficiency level is dropping. So I think if you're going to sit at your hour and twiddle your thumb, sit at your desk for an hour and twiddle your thumbs, don't do that. Get out, go for a walk, get some diverse thinking, think about things separately, have different smells, see different things in the street, come back to your desk and nail that piece of work in 10 minutes, not spinning your wheels for an hour. And it works. Uh, I can <laughs> totally agree. Like, that's amazing, amazing tip. Right. Thank you very much for that. But the, third thing, the third thing is the right tools. And I think, you know, that's where you're such an important part of this equation, the, the tool that you've created, because you are enabling repetitive tasks to be taken out of the pie chart, which gets you back to high volume work and high efficiency. So, you know, it's mindset it's being prepared to, you know, being obsessed by efficiency and it's having the right tools. Yeah, that's, that's part of the equation. Thank you very much for sharing these valuable tips here and tricks. I think listeners will find it extremely valuable as I found in, in new things myself. I mean, I gotta I'll confess, I enjoy this podcast probably as much as any listener who find the value. I find a lot of value out of this episode that's speaking with you, Nicola. So before we wrap up, I just want to ask you something that is not on your LinkedIn profile that you might want to share about you. I have a, a wonderful neurodiverse member in my family. And I think what that has shown me is the absolute importance of different styles of thinking and the value that can be achieved through that. And definitely, therefore, the balance of complementary skills and mindsets in any team. That's really important to me. I don't necessarily post about that. The other thing I would say is vote yes, because <laughs> that's super important as well. All right. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing this. Okay. One last thing before we finish, can you please share what's the best way to contact your amazing consultancy, the design thinkers? Like, is it going to be a website or something else? The designthinkers.com 
and there is a contact form there or through LinkedIn, either myself or the business page. So we'd love to hear from you. As I've said, we love hearing about business problems. So please do reach out if anything we've said sounds like it could help. Cool. I'll probably do this after this call. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Awesome. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to have you as my guest, Nicola. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate that. And I hope you will just broaden the you remove the limits from any business you work with and like collectively contribute and, and help make this world more interesting, <laughs> I would say. Excellent. And thank you for the opportunity, Vladimir. It's so wonderful to have the chance to sit down and, and talk about tools and ways of thinking about agency life. So I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you.